Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word. The promise that you, even you, would be the great comfort of your people. And Lord, you know the sadness that so often dogs our life. Lord, conscious, even this morning, those here carrying burdens, those watching online, feeling the weight of life, who mourn, who grieve. And Lord, we pray, I pray, Lord, that Jesus' words here would indeed be a comfort, even as they promise that comfort of the day when tears are wiped away and crying is no more. Lord, minister to our needs, we pray, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you've been following over these past months the news about the volcanic eruptions in Iceland. I was reading an article on the BBC website of the impact on the residents of a particular town, Grindavik, I think it's pronounced, I might be wrong there, but where you may have remembered back in November, the whole town, the whole town was ordered to leave their homes. And since then, a number of the homes have been destroyed by, through those eruptions, by lava, and residents are now spread out, living in different places across Iceland left not knowing if they'll ever return. That decision has not been made by the government. Saddled, in the meantime, with the burden of mortgages on homes which they may never live in again. Imagine that situation. Imagine the heartbreak. So here's my question. Do Jesus' words here, blessed are those who mourn, Does it speak to them? These beatitudes, these lists of those Jesus describes as blessed, flourishing, are all striking. Perhaps this one, this second one, is most confronting of all. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning is a miserable business. So how can mourning be in the same sentence as that word blessed? If I said to you, happy are the unhappy, that sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? So what's going on here? As I've said before, this is more than an exercise in riddle solving, because I guess the vast majority of us in this room have known grief, know what it is to mourn, to lose a loved one, is never a happy place to be, which is why I explained a couple of weeks ago that happy is probably not the best translation of that word blessed, because we tend to associate happy, don't we, with how we feel in a moment. Jesus isn't saying that about any of those states of being. But he is saying something. He is claiming how truly good it is to find yourself experiencing such a reality, even 
even if in the moment it doesn't feel pleasant. Why? Not because of the states themselves. If that was all there was, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering, thirsting for righteousness, if that's all there was, there's no blessing. But blessed are those because of the promise and purposes of God. Because, as we've seen over these past few weeks, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And because the kingdom of heaven has come near, there is indeed great hope and a well of joy to drink from even on the saddest of days. We all experience loss at one time or another, so it's worth taking some time to understand the declaration that Jesus is making here as we live with sorrow in this world. So we're going to ask the same questions that we asked last week of the previous beatitude. What does Jesus mean when he speaks of mourning? What does, why is such a condition blessed, according to Jesus? And how should such a statement shape us, both individually and corporately as a church? That's where we're going as we look at this verse, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So what does Jesus mean when he speaks of mourning? Actually, this is not the only time in the Bible when the Scriptures speak in such a striking way about mourning. The teacher of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 7 of that book, says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. He suggests a funeral is better than a party. He goes on, for death is the destiny of everyone. The teacher is not saying that death is better than life. It's not. But the journey of everyone leads there. So how much better to number our days rather than pretend that day is never coming. That's the teacher's point in Ecclesiastes 7. But here in Matthew 5, Jesus is going further than that, isn't he? Jesus isn't simply saying, blessed are those who are wise enough to remember that life is short, and so therefore our relationships to people, to experiences, to things will be short-lived. No, rather Jesus is speaking of the experience of loss, of grief. Blessed are those who mourn. The pain of someone precious being torn away from you. The sense of absence because the situation we enjoyed has been taken away. It's a state of loneliness and sorrow where your whole being seems taken up by the one who is no longer there. The longing for circumstances to go back to how they were before, but now they're gone. How is that blessed? Now, one way we could overcome that problem is by saying Jesus isn't talking about that. Instead, Jesus is talking about spiritual mourning, a personal mourning over our sin. If you read the commentators on this passage, some would go in that direction. The problem for me with that approach is that there is nothing obvious in this beatitude itself that narrows down the focus to focus purely on our spiritual lives. We have to read that in. And if you believe, as I do, and as Matthew sets this up, 
that Jesus really did go up on the mountainside, gather his disciples together, the crowds lifting round, and proclaim these blessings, I don't think the crowd would associate blessed are those who mourn, first and foremost, with their spiritual mourning over their personal sin. That is not to say that that is not part of it. We'll get there. But I'm not sure there is really reason to narrow it along those lines. As we said last week, we can read these Beatitudes and long for Jesus to elaborate a bit more, hoping that his response will tidily fit into our thinking about personal salvation. But while the gospel is, of course, about our personal salvation, it is also bigger than that, isn't it? So we read the Bible, it's about the restoration of all things, all that is broken with this world, physically as well as spiritually. A good place to start, I think, then, is to ask, why do the people of God mourn in the Old Testament? And yes, we see it includes their sin. But if you read the Psalms, all the prophets, it is also for other reasons, isn't it? The people are oppressed at the hands of their enemies. Their cities are in ruins. Their people know shame and dishonor. Often it's because God's people suffer while the wicked prosper and God seems absent. This sense of things is particularly illustrated, isn't it, in the prophets? Perhaps particularly, none more so than Jeremiah. He's afflicted with this deep sense, isn't he, of mourning at what is ahead even when everyone around him can't see it. There seems to be, they seem to be living in a state of denial, not accepting what Jeremiah says. And and yet Jeremiah carries this divinely given sense of what is about to happen. Leads him to tears. And so we read these words, for example, in Jeremiah 15, as he sits before the Lord, I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wounds so grievous and incurable? You are to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. You hear in his words the pain and sorrow that arise because of the direction of travel of his nation. You see similar, don't you, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus? He sees the direction of travel for Israel and he mourns for her. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate to you. In both those instances, there is something in Jesus and Jeremiah which recognizes that things are deeply out of joint, deeply out of joint with this world, this life. Things are not how they should be. Such mourning tears your heart painfully away from natural attachments. Jesus weeps as he finds himself dislocated from the people who he longed to gather into his arms, but they reject him. We might say, well, Jesus and Jeremiah mourn because of the sin of others, but as you think about Jesus weeping, of course, I'm sure you remember Jesus weeping at the death of his friend, his friend Lazarus, as death rips his friend from him. 
whatever its cause, mourning is the emotional overflow when things of this present age are torn away by death, by sin, by aging, by ill health, by change of experience for the, or circumstances for the worse, by financial trouble. The people, things, the rhythms that represented our loves are torn away and these things are now out of reach. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Here's the thing about the things we mourn over. Only God can restore them. Only God could bring it back. Only God can bring relief from the things you really mourn over. Remember when Jesus arrives at the home of Mary and Martha, Lazarus has been dead four days. And Mary and and, and Martha, if you know the story, they mourn in different ways, don't they? Martha hears Jesus is on his way and marches out to him. Mary stays at home. But as Jesus meets each of them, don't know if you pick this up, they say exactly the same thing to Jesus. Do you remember? Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. In the aftermath of Lazarus' death, they both sense deeply, don't they, the absence of Jesus. If he was here, all would be well. They feel the absence of God in that moment. They feel the separation. Lord, if you've been here. Friends, the road of grief and mourning is a winding road. There are many different experiences and feelings along that journey. We respond in different ways at different times. But I wonder, if there is one thing in common, if we line up grief over the loss of a loved one, grief at the state of our world, grief at the state of our lives, the sin, the mess we made, grief of the unexpected change in circumstances for the worst, in every instance... We feel our isolation as human beings. And whether we recognize it or not, fundamentally, it is isolation from God, separation from him. If you had been here, Lord, if we weren't separated from you, this world and our experience of it would be different from how it is right now. As we read the opening chapters of Luke, we meet, don't we? Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithful but sorrowful, unable to have a family. No doubt they grieved. We meet Simeon, waiting for the consolation. Consider that word, the consolation of Israel, a man grieving for his nation. We meet the widow Anna, her husband died after seven years of marriage. Since then, till her 84th year, she stayed in the temple. How she must have grieved. All feeling in those moments the absence of God and longing for his coming. Friend, I don't know the sorrows sorrows that you carry. But where is it that you feel the absence of God? Perhaps you wouldn't phrase it that way. Okay, but if God was there and he could bring relief, 
where would it be? Let's walk through a couple. The morning I know that many of you carry for the departure of a loved one. Different day to day, but always with you, real pain. A dear loved one that has been taken away from you. In that loneliness, only God could ever fully relieve that ache. Perhaps for some it's the mess that you have made in your life. Perhaps you live with the guilt, the shame, the consequences. You look back and wish you had listened. Or that someone would have been there to talk you round in that moment. And you know deep down, only God could bring relief. Only God could fix it. Only God can make it all right. Only God can wipe away the tears. Perhaps for others, you look at the society that we live in and you, f- you feel deeply things are out of joint right now. Perhaps it's just the general character of life, the loss of values, the situation in which people, even within our own town, have to live with. Or the particular stories of the news, the sentencing of two teenagers for the murder of Bryony Gay. Or last month, the tragic story of two-year-old Bronson Battersby, who starved to death as his father had a heart attack at home, died and there was no one there for him. You hear the stories like that, and what, whatever the details, you feel the depth of sadness that things can be that way. And where is the relief? Come, Lord Jesus. That's why I started with that story of the residents from Grandavik in Iceland forced to leave their homes, separated from the community they lived. That is, all of us displaced from our home with God, locked out of the garden. Yes, because of our sin. But you and I feel that separation, that absence, in all sorts of different ways in our lives, different seasons. And so we mourn. Do you feel the absence of God? Do you need his comfort? So why does Jesus call this blessed? Why is such a condition blessed according to Jesus? Again, let's be clear. Jesus is not saying you are blessed because you've seen through the glitz and wonder of this world to recognize that it's deeply out of joint. Most learn that lesson at some point. It is... The promise of comfort that makes the one mourning blessed. Because they will be comforted. So is Jesus saying that everyone who is, anyone who has ever grieved will be comforted? Is the promise of heaven's consolation for anyone who has ever felt sad? Well, we need to be clear, don't we, that Jesus speaks into a specific context. We've emphasized this over the last two weeks, but we need to be reminded of it with each of these Beatitudes. Not only is Jesus speaking to his disciples, but even more importantly, he has come announcing that with him the arrival of the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
It is the coming of the kingdom in Jesus that brings blessing to the poor in spirit, to those who mourn, to the meek, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so the blessing is only in the context of receiving the kingdom. The thing for which we long, the comfort for which we need in the face of our mourning comes to us only in the kingdom. If you like, the blessing of these Beatitudes every time is only tied to Jesus. Nowhere else. So, are we sitting at the feet of Jesus? Are we receiving from him? If at the heart of mourning is a deep sense of the absence of God, recognized as that or not, then the presence of God, the rule and restoration that comes, that, that God brings, coming in the kingdom, comes in Jesus. And of course, if you know the Old Testament promise concerning the coming of Christ, that is the means by which God's holy, good, and merciful reign would be manifest. So you remember the great pronouncement. We read it at the beginning of our service in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And the place in the book of Isaiah where those words come is perhaps the most incredible thing about those words. In the previous chapter, doom has been pronounced on King Hezekiah, and with it, it would seem the end of the line of David, which puts on the line all of those promises earlier in Isaiah about the one on David's throne, the root from the stump of Jesse. It's all on the line. And at the darkest moment, when the abandonment of God might be most felt, the call goes out from God himself to speak the word of comfort, of sins forgiven, and that God's people are the flock that he has worked for and now holds in his tender care. And the chapters that follow announce that God will return and address his people's bereftness. Indeed, he will be with them and make himself known to them as their husband. And that's the the imagery that those chapters pick up of the abandoned widow rescued as the husband returns with great rejoicing. And of course, as Jesus comes, he announces himself through his first miracle in John's Gospel, but also in his conversation with with the Pharisees and others as the bridegroom. Jesus is asked in chapter 9 of Matthew, why do disciples don't fast? And Jesus responds, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will mourn. And again, see it, friends, in his first coming, Jesus provides a taste of the comfort that is promised in this beatitude as Jesus is present with his people. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. You see the relief that Jesus brings? as the brokenness of our world in that place, in that time, is undone for that momentary season as the kingdom is present in the king. That's what you're witnessing as you read the Gospels. That backs up the promise here, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
but also this king not only gives us a taste of life under the blessing of God, but addresses the pain at the heart of our lives because of the absence of God. The prophets foretold, didn't they, that Jesus would be a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Isaiah writes, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. You see, when we walk through suffering and grief, we can have this question, can't we? Is God against us? Why is his hand so heavy upon us? Why has this happened? And Isaiah identifies in Jesus. Yeah, we thought that about him. But he was dealing with our biggest problem. The absence of God in our lives because of our sin. And he was restoring us. But he was pierced, Isaiah goes on, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, reconciliation, was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus forsaken at the cross. He feels the abandonment of God as he stands in our place. That that eternal comfort might be ours. Here is the answer to the deep sorrows we carry. Jesus will bring us home to the place where every tear will be dried. He has reconciled us in the cross to God. The words of the Beatitude tell us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. A sense of future. Jesus, the bridegroom, is no longer present in the way he was in his days on earth. And as we wait for his return, in the meantime we experience the brokenness and pain of this fallen world. And yet the Lord is with his people by his Holy Spirit. And the day of full and final comfort will come. Isaiah captures it so beautifully in those words we read from Isaiah 51. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will be no more. They'll flee away. And then God says this, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The comfort of God himself. Do you mourn? Do you grieve? God has come near in Jesus. Take security in him. Think, Christian, on the adoption that is yours in Christ, sons and daughters of the Most High, the Most High who sees your sorrow, records your misery, and one day will dry every tear so that there will be no more crying. No more crying, not simply because the future is perfect, but no more crying because your past will be resolved. Come to Jesus. 
And what a promise to those who have come to Jesus. You rest in his love. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. So, finally, how should Jesus' statement shape us individually and corporately? Lots of things we can say. I have four for you. Firstly, four things. Firstly, bring your tears, your sorrows to Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He's not describing a scientific law like water boils at 100 degrees C. He's pronouncing blessing upon those who mourn, but as I said earlier, blessing that is tied to him. It's only found in him. He is our hope, our only hope amidst the brokenness of this world, the sorrows that we walk through. There are many things we do not understand about our suffering, the suffering of others. And some of that, much of that is deeply painful. But as you search for comfort, take Jesus at his word and come to him. He does not say, blessed are those who mourn, for you will have all the answers. Maybe one day. But Jesus promises comfort. Comfort in knowing he cares so deeply. He suffered in your place to make things well in the end. Friends, this is so important because most of the time we... My microphone just gone off. Is it, is it on again? It's gone. So let me say that again. Most of the time we deal with our pain through distraction entertainment, to take our minds off things, to numb the pain. But it leads us adrift. It's no answer. It leads us comfortless. But God would be your comfort. Struck me again this week. When we think about mourning, understandably, our first association with mourning is because someone has died. And obviously, we mourn more deeply when that person is a loved one, a spouse, a parent. So, friends, isn't it wonderful that in the Bible, God describes himself as a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows? Psalm 68, verse 5. The grief you feel is not a side issue to God. No, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. There, in the courts of heaven, he would be your father, your defender. Come to Jesus. There is the comfort you seek. Bring your tears, your sorrows to Jesus. Secondly, understand understand the connection between sin and suffering. Connection between sin and suffering. Notice I didn't say the connection between your sin and your suffering. The Bible and experience tell us there is no discernible connection between our sin and our own suffering. Sin has consequences, but there's no correlation on a personal level. If you're not sure, look at Jesus. No sin, much suffering. Instead, understand the connection between sin and suffering. Sin enters the world, the Bible tells us, through Adam and Eve, and so the curse and death. 
Sin separates from God, don't they? Adam and Eve expelled from the garden into the, into the world where they would know thorns and thistles. Difficulty in human relationships and death. If most often our mourning comes from suffering and at the heart of that pain, if you have been here, Lord... We feel the absence of God, a world subjected to frustration, then process your suffering within the framework of the gospel, not separate from it. The comfort you and I seek is given through the Saviour who has dealt with our deepest problem, our alienation from God at the cross. So in our sorrows, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. How do you know he cares for you? Christ died for your sins. Yeah? That connection. Suffering and sin that the Bible gives us. Not all the answers about suffering, but that connection is there, isn't it? All we could say. But such view helps us frame our suffering well, doesn't it? In this world, we will have trouble. Heaven is the place where all the tears are wiped away. But we have this hope. We will be comforted. Without such hope, our sorrows threaten to make us bitter and angry, cynical, controlling of others, because our only resource is to try and manipulate things to work as we want. We become thankless and blaming But this promise, this hope, changes our posture, doesn't it? We wait on the Lord, watching for his goodness, his rescue. We can even wonder how might he use this disappointment, this defeat, this dark time for bigger things in our lives and even the lives of others. It shapes us to pray, to confess our sins to him, to live with thankfulness because he will comfort those who mourn. In the entrance area, there's a card like this that will help you to remember those things I've just said. It talks about how we might feel where we lose sight of the gospel story and God's love in our lives and how our posture can change. We, I, I had it at the prayer meeting. There's a few copies left. You might want to use that in your Bible. Help you to pray through some of those situations. Process your sorrows through the framework of the gospel. Thirdly, more corporately now, mourn church mourn with those who mourn mourn with those who mourn i quoted those verse from ecclesiastes 7 the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure if that is true then the church should be much more than a place of entertainment we do not gather to distract ourselves from the troubles of this world i hope there is I trust there is much joy and indeed feasting in this place. But we must be a people who mourn with those who mourn, who are not afraid to acknowledge the tragedy of life, not afraid to acknowledge evil, and even that we don't always understand why God has worked the way he has. We can be okay to say that his ways are higher than our ways, but we have good reason to trust that he is good, still good. Again, look at the cross. 
We've read, haven't we, Isaiah 53 about Jesus. We considered him stricken by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds we are healed. And in the, but in the here and now, we live in a veil of tears, don't we? So often. We must make space in our fellowship for that feeling. Lord, if you have been here. It's not an artistic flourish that the last book of the Bible ends with the exhortation, come Lord Jesus. Because we should feel that. And so we should pray. To be in mourning is a very lonely place and the church should understand that. Fourthly, lastly, let us comfort one another, therefore with the comfort we have received. Mourning alongside others should draw us to the people, not standing at a distance from them. And so we should desire to bring comfort. Remember those words in 2 Corinthians 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. The, God comfort, the comfort God gives us in our sorrows, we've said it before, is bound to Jesus. All the Beatitudes, they're not general truths, but specific to the crucified and risen Jesus. As a church, the comfort for our sorrows and our sin is that Christ triumphed over sin and death. Triumphed over your sin, my sin, your death, my death. And so the comfort we primarily hold out as a church is Christ. He is the Savior, not us. Not just in words, but also through lives of Christ-like love. We saw it in the book of Ruth, didn't we, in the evening service recently. Naomi knows the transforming power of grace amid suffering, mediated by Ruth's selfless love. The woman who wants to be called bitter for such is her life in chapter 1, is pronounced blessed in chapter 4. God restores her life. But Ruth and Boaz are the instruments, likewise, as a church, that we would be that to one another in our community, that people in sorrow would meet the Savior. And what a Savior. That means taking risks, denying our ease and comfort so that the Savior might meet others through our lives amidst their sorrows and they might hear him say in the coming of my kingdom those who mourn are blessed because they will be comforted may you know his comfort let's pray father we do bow before you acknowledging In our lives, there is much sorrow. Lord, aware, even as I speak this morning, there will be particular things on folks' minds individually. Lord, thank you that not only do you know, but Lord, you have moved towards them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is comfort both now and for eternity. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that cares well for one another that mourns with those who mourn, as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice, that we would share the comfort that we have in Christ in loving and gentle ways 
not only to one another, but to the communities in which we live, communities surrounding this church, that in a broken world, people would know, more people would know, that there is eternal comfort, that tears can be wiped away forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, minister to us, we pray. In our needs, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.